Numbers chapter 32, and I know some of you who may not have been following the Numbers series with us are looking at the notes and you're wondering how in the world is he going to do that um, and get through two pages of notes. Don't worry, we'll, we'll get through it. It might take a little bit longer than now. We're good. We'll, we'll get through it. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a good journey uh, through the book. And pun intended, because it is all about journeying and about the journey of the, of the people of Israel. And I really have enjoyed how practical this book has been and how much it has just brought us face-to-face with some of the struggles in our, in our lives, in my life, as going through the whole last year and a half and everything that's been up and down and all over the place and whatever normal is and all that stuff. Numbers 32 is going to do the same thing. It's just the Lord in His timing brings these messages, and it's a, it's a good one for us. It's a good one for me to wrestle through and to say, okay, where am I at in relationship to number, number 32? Maybe over the, the last weeks, months, years, have you, had, have you had this happen to you where you're walking, you're getting something, something's like, oh, close enough, stay back, you know, you, six feet, give me, you know. Or maybe, maybe you're the person who's done that, you know, some, stay close enough, you know. And we want, we want that distance. And, and we're implying we want you to stop or somebody needs, wants you to stop there or you want someone to stop and don't, don't get any closer. And in Numbers 32, we're going to hit that moment where there's going to be a close enough situation. Now, it's a little bit different than this type of close enough where someone's going to stop. But Numbers 32 is more like the home project close enough. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hands, maybe wives will, my wife would, believe me, uh, there, you have these projects that you start at home, and you get going, and you finish it. The job is done, almost. It's, it's close enough. I mean, it's done, but it's really not done-done. You know, the, the trim, there's, there's a piece of trim in our house that now everybody, anybody who comes to my house is going to look to see if I ever finish it. Uh, it's behind the TV. You wouldn't notice it, but it's not done. But the trim is up, but it's not. Look at Jesus, just like, fix it. It's, you know? <laughs> yes, dear. Uh, <laughs> numbers, numbers 32 is one of these moments. You know, the nail holes are in the trim, and they're there, but they're not finished, and they're not. You got one coat of paint, and you're like, I can live with it. You know, it's not done, done, but it's just there. Numbers 32 is that situation where it's close. They are close to the promised land. They're close enough for some. And as we look at Numbers 32, we're going to see that some of these Israelites are going to battle with this close enough situation. Now, if you remember from biblical history, working through the passages all the way from Genesis on, Israel has been in uh, bondage in Egypt for 400 years. And after they were redeemed by Moses, God uses him to bring them out of Egypt and cross the uh, Red Sea. They make their way to Mount Sinai. And when they make their way to Mount Sinai, they find themselves receiving the law and getting the law from God. And in that law, they make these agreements with God. If we do this, God will bless us. If we follow him, he will do this. And there's all these, this covenant that God makes with Israel and Israel makes with God called the Mosaic Covenant or the law. And that happens in Mount Sinai. Well, when they leave from Mount Sinai, they are going to be moving toward what is called the land of Canaan or what we often know as the promised land. It is the land that God has promised to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that he swore by an oath that he would give to the people. In fact, in Numbers 32, verse 11, you see that he talks about that this is the land which I swear to Abraham, unto Isaac, unto Jacob. And he says, I have promised it to them. And we have that throughout the the Old Testament, that this was a land that God had said, I want my people to dwell in. 
I want them to live here. And so God has promised that to him. Well, when they get to Numbers chapter 14, the, the Israelites make their way to Kadesh Barnea. It's an oasis. And Moses sends out 12 spies. It's like the one story that everybody knows in Numbers. That the 12 men went to spy in Canaan, and 10 of them were bad, and two were good. And they come back, and they, they lay it all out to the people. And those 10 people, those 10 spies, discourage the heart of Israel. And in their unbelief, they turn Israel away from God and away from following. And the people say, we want nothing to do with it. In fact, we want to go back to Egypt. We don't even want to stay and and even try. And so God sentences them, a harsh sentence, but a a fitting sentence, to, to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and everybody over the age of 20 is going to die. They're not going to be able to enter into the promised land because of their unbelief and their unwillingness to follow God's provision, his protection, and his providence. By the time we get to Numbers 32, the second generation is now across the Jordan River, They're ready to go into the promised land. It has all now come full circle, and now it's the second generation's turn to go in. And they are on this place called the Transjordan side. You may have never heard of that term, Transjordan, but the Transjordan side is important to understanding this passage. The Transjordan side, when we talk about the promised land, when the Bible talks about what was this land that was promised, it's talking about the land on the west side of the Jordan River. The Jordan River is between the Sea of Galilee, the one little blue dot, and the Dead Sea. And it is that area right there. That is the promised land. When you look at number 34, that is the area that's laid out. When it's talked about to Abraham, this is the area that's laid out. And so this was the place that God said, I want my people to go. This is the place where the spies looked. And it was a wonderful place to live. Remember, they said it was a land that flows with milk and honey. They brought back these huge grapes and all of these pomegranates and fruits. And they said it was a wonderful and great place to live, but they didn't want to face the giants. They didn't want to face the fortified cities. And so they turned in their unbelief against God. Well, the Transjordan side is located on the east side of Jordan, the Jordan River. It is not where the technical promised land was to be. It is not where God had initially designed for his people to reside. It was a fertile, grassy place. It was a wonderful place. It was a place that when they looked at it, and you look at it now even, the valleys, the hillsides are wonderful for growing grain crops, growing fruit. It was a place where there's numerous springs, and it would provide ample water for people and for the lot. That, that many of these children of Israel had. And so they look at this place and it seems like a really interesting place. In fact, the Transjordan side was already conquered. All of Numbers 28, 29, 30, 31 is all about some of the conquering that has happened on the Transjordan side. The, the children of Israel have beaten Og, who was a giant, bigger than Goliath. This guy was massive defeated him. They defeated Sion, who was uh, known as a great warrior and had all these fortified cities. They just crushed in Numbers 31 the Midianites, who was a whole formidable foe. This whole side of the Transjordan is now conquered. And the Lord has led these victories for the children of Israel. And so as the children of Israel are there, and they're on this side, there's no enemies here. It's a lush, fertile, wonderful place that is there. But the intent was not for the children of Israel to settle here and occupy. The intent was for the children of Israel, given by God, to go across the Jordan and to settle in the promised land. Now, after the last victory of Numbers 31, there was great spoil from the, from the victories. There was livestock galore, and you can read through, through that. In fact, in verse 1 here, 
we're going to see that in verse 1 of chapter 32, it says, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of cattle. In the Hebrew, it actually starts off cattle. There was a lot of cattle with the, Hebrew, with the tribes of Reuben and Gad. It puts an emphasis on they had a lot of livestock. This was important to them, and they had, they had much. And they had acquired it perfectly legitimately. There wasn't anything shady. They, weren't, they, they just acquired it through the spoils of war, through good work, hard, diligent work, and they had, they had numerous amounts of, of livestock. And there was no sin in them owning and having all this stuff. However, having too much stuff placed the temptation in their path. It was a, a struggle with what is often called the sin of affluence. That when there is a lot and when we possess a lot and we have a lot, there is a tendency to focus on a lot and focus on less of the, the more important things. And so they're going to battle with this struggle here. In fact, look in, look in verses 1 to 5. We see that they're going to come here. They're going to have these great cattle. And when they saw these two tribes that have amassed a great amount of wealth, they've been traveling through. Think about where they've been traveling. They've been down in the arid terrains, in the desert regions, down in the south, in the wilderness. The whole time you're bringing your cattle, you're constantly trying to find water. You're trying to find food and grain. And now all of a sudden, as they work their way up this Transjordan side, they start to see water and grain and land that is perfect for livestock. In fact, they even they talk about that at the end of verse 1. The place was a place for cattle. You couldn't get around it. You looked and said, okay, this is a great place. And so they've just conquered this. They, maybe they're looking at Moses and they're going to say, hey, we've conquered this land. We want, we want this land. And that's what they're going to do. They were on their way to the promised land, the place where God said they were to inherit. But as they looked around, they wondered, can it get any better than this? This is the place for cattle. We have a lot of cattle. Can it be that there is something that's better now, some have looked and said, well, this is just a really wise, astute business analyzation by, the, by Reuben and by Gab, by the tribes, to look and say, well, we have cattle, and this land is full of cattle, perfect for it. We want to settle here. But Moses and the Word of God does not interpret it as just a wise business shrewd move. They're going to look and say, Moses is going to say, this is a sinful temptation in your heart that you have. In fact, look in verse 1, it says that they saw when that phrase starts, when you look in the Old Testament, it often refers to the beginning of a bad decision. Eve saw the fruit. Lot looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and he saw that the land was fertile for crops, for his livestock. They looked toward, David looks, and he sees Bathsheba, saw. And so it is often a prelude to bad decisions. Choosing with our eyes can very easily lead us into dangerous places. And so they look with their eyes, they look at what they want, and those places then become hard for us to leave because the possessions that we have, the things that we love, the desires that we have, weigh us down and it gets harder to leave. It happens in our, in our lives with our spouses. You know, when people are looking for spouses, they look with their eyes. They don't look at the character. They don't look to see, is this an individual who is a godly, Christ-centered character, has good character, good ethics? They just look, they look good or not. And they base it completely on what they see rather than 
qualities. We do it with our careers. You look and say, well, it's a great business opportunity. There's not really any good churches in the area, but that's okay. We'll figure it out. Is that really a a positive, a profitable thought? We purchase and we purchase and we purchase, and then we wonder why we don't have later on, because we look with our eyes. We make choices and we see, and we don't look through the full consequences of what is happening. We're constantly battling with this idea that Reuben and Gad are going to battle with settling down, being comfortable, and investing in ourselves rather than setting our affections on the things above. And that is going to drive at some of the core issue of what Reuben and Gad are facing here. They, they have these two tribes. And as these two tribes are settling in this place, they're dictated by their possessions. It's not anything more than we have good cattle and this is good cattle land. So they ask Moses, verse 5, for permission. They say, if we found grace in your sight, let this land be given unto your servants for a possession and bring us not over Jordan. Don't, don't bring us over there. Let us stay here. They do come with respect. This isn't a disrespectful, angry situation, but they say, if we found that grace, can we come? And they make it a spiritual. They couch it in spiritual jargon. Look in verse four. They say, remember, this is the land that the Lord before the congregation of Israel, he's given us this country. He helped us to win. That's true. He did win the battles. That's true. He did put it out there. But they're couching it in this, this jargon so that they can get what they want. Have we ever done that? Have you ever wanted something and so oh, the Lord wants me to have? The Lord's will is that I, and before you know it, you're, you're blaming the Lord on things that you probably shouldn't be doing or buying things that you shouldn't, but the Lord really wanted me to have. We, we can do the same thing. And they, they couch it in that jargon, but their possessions are what are choosing their inheritance, not the word of the Lord. Now, there's more that's going on here, though, because you can just look and say, okay, it's just a request for land. Is that, is that what's happening? There's more to this request. And, and commentators take it two different ways. The first one, most people don't take it that way. There's one or two weird guys out there who take it this way. But they say the tribes, what they're actually asking is they have a desire to settle down in this Transjordan region and then go over and help the, the, their brothers in, the Can- in Canaan and in the conquest. But the scripture doesn't match up with that. In fact, it's interesting that no one else wants to set up shop here. It's only those who have this great amount of cattle. And they, they don't want to settle down in the wilderness. They only decide that they want to start looking to settle down when things are looking good. And so they, they want to they settle down. They don't want to go over. The other way that it's taken, it talks about this, that the tribes are requesting to settle in the Transjordan area and opt out of the military conflict that's going to come in Canaan. Everyone knows, every single Jew in the tribe of Israel at this point knows that there is going to be a military conflict. They've been told, you're going to go in, there's going to be war. The military censuses, all the censuses and numbers are military driven. They've been given marching orders. They've been told all of this about how to set up a military camp. It's all about the fact that there is going to be a conflict and there's going to be a war. And all of a sudden, these these two tribes here say, you know, we like this area. We don't want to go over there and face the conflict. And that's the way that Moses sees it. Notice at the end of verse 5, they say, don't bring us or don't lead us. We don't want to be led by you over the Jordan. We want out. They want to sit on the sideline while the rest of their congregation of Israel goes into battle. They want to sit on the side. The wealth of cattle, the grazing potential of the land, their possessions, their desires, have that's what's choosing where they want to be not what God has said. And so there's this battle here that it's only when their earthly surroundings seem conducive 
for comfort that they were tempted to put down roots. And they look and say, this is comfortable. This is really nice. I like where I'm at. It's, it's a good spot. They can deal with the conflict. I'm going to sit on the sidelines and, and just wait for a little bit. And so Moses is going to confront this, and he confronts it as sin. And there's some, some really good perspectives on dealing with sin, even confronting sin within our midst, in our families. Good parental advice here on how to, to go about interacting with your kids when, they, uh, when they're borderline or flirting with the idea of sin. How do we, how do we go about it? We don't enjoy confrontation. Is that a pretty fair assessment? I I don't like it, and most of us don't. But it is a necessary part to spiritual growth. And so Moses begins, and he says, he sees this as a sinful request. Notice in verse number six. Verse number six, it says, Moses says to the children of Israel, shall your brethren go to war, and you sit here. And he's going to lay it out here. He sees this as sin. He draws the attention to their selfishness to their desire for comfort. Are you going to dwell here while your brothers go into battle? The dwell here has the intention of not going to help at all. It's not even a potential. He's looking and saying, you want to settle down. You want to sit on the sidelines. You want to park it while others do the spiritual battle, while others go into war. They felt they were self-sufficient. They liked to isolate. They were okay. We're going to be by ourselves. We don't have to worry about anybody else. We just want to be left alone and let us do our thing. You do your thing. If you really want to get into that, go ahead. But we're going to sit on the sidelines and we're going to do what we want to do. So Moses makes them think about the consequences of their choice, of their actions, or of their inactions. Verse 7, it says, And wherefore discourage you the hearts of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them. The the word here, when he talks about this idea of discouraging, some have talked about and called it a sin of omission. Are you familiar with that term? There's the sins of omission and the sins of commission. A sin of commission is God says, do not lie. And I choose, you know what? I'm going to lie to you. I'm just going to, I'm going to blatantly do exactly against what God says. The sin of omission is where God tells us to do something and we just sort of let it go. We don't really, we don't actively, like if, if okay, we're supposed to share the gospel. God tells us to do that. Most of us here are not going to sit and go, I am never going to share the gospel. But what we do is we just, yeah, I'm not real comfortable with that. So I'm going to leave that on the side. God tells us to pray. None of us are going to argue that we shouldn't pray. But I really don't have a lot of time. So I'm just going to sort of let that, you know, go by the wayside. That's a sin of omission. I'm just sort of not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. They're not blatantly breaking a direct command of God. But God has said, we're going into the promised land. And they are going to inherit. They're going to receive the, their inheritance, not from the Jordan, the, the Canaan side, but they want it on that other side. So Moses recognizes this request as something that could shake the unity of Israel, something that could hurt them at the core. The word discouraged there in verse 7 has the idea of literally to pull back the reins, to restrain the heart. He says to Reuben and Gad, by your willingness to sit on the sidelines, by your willingness to say, I'm not going to do anything, by your willingness to settle down and live in comfort while your congregation of Israel goes into battle, while they face the warfare, and you decide that you just don't want to really do anything because you don't have time and you just want to sit here and live in your comfy. He says, you 
potentially discourage and pull back the hearts of God's people doing what God wants them to do. He says, you can, you're going to break the rank. They're going to they're get nervous and they're going to skirmish. They're going to run away. They're going to go. And Moses believed that his, the people, in order to be victorious, needed to be united in form and function and in focus. To look and to say, we... As a group of people, we need to be united in our purpose. We need to be united in what we're doing. We need to be going forward. And to look and to say, well, if I just choose not to do something, it doesn't really impact. Moses here is going to beg to differ with us. He's going to seriously say, for me to just say, I'm going to sit on the sidelines and do what I want to do, or I'm going to choose to live however I want to live, has no impact on anybody else. Moses says, it does. It has the potential to discourage the hearts. We need to be united. Moses encourages them. He says, oh, here's what I want you to do. And when we're talking with individuals, this is a great opportunity. Learn from the mistakes of yesterday. It's not the, I'm going to teach you your mode of operation. You always do this. But Moses looks and says, hey, have you learned from the past? Have you learned from what has been said before and done before? Verses 8 through 11, it stings. Because I don't know about you, but the the one of the worst things that my wife could say to me is you are just like your, I heard it, father. You're just, sorry, dad, if you're watching, I love you. Uh, if she says you're just like your father, and none of us like to hear that, you know, you're just like your mother. She'd be like, don't you, do, well, look at what Moses does. Moses looks and says to them, thus did your fathers, when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eskel and they saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel that they should not go into the land which the Lord has given them. Moses draws the parallel and says, you're acting just like your fathers did. You saw something, you didn't like what you saw, you saw that and you said, I don't want it. And you discouraged the hearts of the people. And Moses looks at them and says, you're acting, you need to learn from those mistakes that your, your fathers made. Learn from the mistakes of the past. Moses compares what many would see as a normal wise request as a serious affront to God. Moses is not looking and saying, you just saying you want to settle in the Transjordan because that's a really nice place and it's a good business decision. Moses looks at them and says, this is an affront to God. Because God has told you where he wants you to settle. God has told you where blessing is. God has told you what is important to him. And you're going to say, no, this, this, it can't get any better than this. This is what I want. He compares the request to their unbelief at Kadesh Barnea. And so these, these individuals, Reuben and Gad, the tribes, they have to wrestle with, are we really acting like our fathers? Have we learned from history? Have we learned from the past? They were turning their back on God from the, for the preferences of what they wanted, the comfort they desired, the way that they wanted to be. They have not, notice, and this, is, this is important in the passage here. They have not, verse 11 at the end, these individuals have not wholly followed me. You're gonna see this word come up two more times, the followed. You, they have not wholly followed me. They were half-hearted toward God. They were settling for the comfort of the Transjordan side rather than continuing on by faith through the difficulties that were lying ahead with the promised land. They said, we're going to do our own thing. We're going to live the way that we desire to do. Moses then encourages them. He says, hey, you've learned from the past. Maybe you haven't, but let me give you somebody to look to. And even when we're, when we're encouraging and we're talking to our kids, we're talking to maybe a fellow believer who's going through, 
a difficult time, we look at them and say, hey, you know, here's some godly people that maybe you should connect with or follow after. He says, look at Joshua and Caleb. He talks about them in verses 12 and 13, you know, and he says, do you remember them? What did they do? Look at the end of that verse there. Verse 12, for they wholly followed the Lord. They were focused. They were saying, we are going to do what God desires us to do. And even if it stood the giants, even if it stood and meant that they were going to go against difficult uh, cities and places, they said, we're going to go because God is with us. They believed in God's providence and God's protection, God's provisions in their life. And so they said, we're going to wholly follow God, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to be the easiest or the most comfortable thing to do. They wholly followed. These men were not defectors of the faith. They looked and said, we're going to follow. We're going to do and act and be what God wants us to be. So then Moses goes a little bit further. Moses shows them that they failed to discern God's estimate of their actions. Look in verse 14. He says, And behold, you are risen up in your father's stead, an increase of sinful men to augment yet the fierce anger of the Lord toward Israel. He looks at them and says, you are here, and not only was there the potential to turn their hearts not to follow God, but he says, your thoughts, what you're thinking about doing, settling down and just being comfy and not being active with your your brethren, it's not a good thing. He says, you've taken your father's position of doubt, of unbelief. You are a group of, the, the word there is the brood. You're this brooding group of sinful men. You're, you're building up, and it's not good. You're about to bring the wrath of God, notice it said, upon you and upon Israel. Your actions, he says, to Reuben and to Gad, your choice to live this way, to reject what God has and to settle down the way you want to, Moses looks at him and says, you're gonna potentially, just like your fathers did, bring the wrath of God down upon you. We don't want that. And we don't want it upon our congregation, he says. And so Moses highlights the, 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 the sin, the, the potential of where they're headed. Moses teaches that failure to follow God brings potential problems. Verse 16, he goes on. And he's, uh, verse 15, excuse me. For if you turn away from after him, it's a weird, weird wording there, but it literally reads, if you turn away from following him. You're, you're there literally to, to follow after. Moses is opposed to any turning away. He says, this is God's plan. This is what God has for us. Why would we settle for less? Why would we choose to live in comfort when God says, I want you to go here? Why would we choose just to look and say, it's not a big deal what I do when God says it's a big deal? And so Moses is highlighting that a failure to follow him To follow God brings about potential problems for us. This is really a moment of decision for Israel, specifically for the tribes of Reuben and Gad. What are they going to do? How are they going to respond to the confrontation that is laid before them when God has said, and Moses has said, your sin or your potential sin that you're asking and the things you're asking for, this is an affront to God. Remember that a half-hearted attempt to follow God it's not going to end well. It never does. You look through scriptures, you look through people who half-heartedly follow God. It doesn't end well for them. Those who, James talks about the the divided person, the person who is, you know, washed to and fro, back and forth, 
half-hearted attempts at God, it doesn't end well. We battle the same thing, don't we? I do. Being half-hearted, being self-centered, wanting what I want. We enjoy what we have without the thought of God's call upon our lives. What does God expect of us? God has redeemed us. We are bought with the price. How do we respond to that? What does God expect from us? This impacts not only ourselves, but it really does impact the temperature of our congregation. He says to Israel, to, to these two tribes, he says, what you do has the potential to influence millions. The same is true for us. The choices we make, the way we choose to live, the way we choose to serve or not serve, it has impact upon the temperature of our body of our congregation. And so we have to look and say, wait, do I struggle with the sins of affluence? Do I struggle with the sins of self-centeredness? Do I struggle with the sins of Reuben and Gad? Do I, do I struggle with some of those same things? And personally, I do. At times, I really do. This was all brought about because they were walking by sight and not by faith. Walking by sight is being content with the best that the world has to offer. That's what I want. I want that car. I want that house. I want that vacation. I want that person. I want, and everything becomes the best that the world has to offer. But walking by faith has this idea of, it's marked by a holy discontentment with the world. Not merely when life is going good, but even when it's going not so good. And not when it's just bad, because it's easy for us to look to God when it's bad, but what about when things are going good? Things are getting back to normal. We're going to be able to, you know, all of a sudden we're, we're dedicated. We're like, yeah, we're going to be a church. And get, well, things aren't open up, but church is open up so I can come to church because there's nothing else I can do right now. So I might as well come here. But now when things open up, will church go by the wayside because now I can do all the things I really want to do on a Sunday? How does that, how does that play out in our lives? How will these two tribes respond? Will they dig in? Will they defy Moses and God? Will they just push back and say, no, this is what we want? Will they look and shut down and not listen, put their fingers in, yeah, I don't want to hear, la, la, la. You know, are they going to repent of their sinful thoughts? Are they going to reset and resist the temptation? How are they going to respond? And it comes down to some choices they have to make. And we see that they do respond well. Verses 16 to 42, there is this disaster, potential disaster that's going to be averted. They look at Moses and basically say, you're right. There's not merely this grudging tone of acquiescence. Do you know what I mean by that? That, okay, dad, fine, I'm sitting down, but I'm not sitting down inside. I don't care. You know, I'll do what you want me to do, but I really don't want to do what you want me to do. And we have those grudging tones where, fine, I'll do it, but I really don't want to. That's not the tone that Reuben and Gad show in this, in this passage. In fact, as we look, they, they come with respect to Moses in verse 16. They say, okay, Moses, we're going to come. We're going to ask you with, with respect, can we do something else? They come with a plan too. And I love this portion of scripture because it reminds us even as parents that as we're disciplining or as we're dealing with our children and our teens, we have to have an appeals process. Let them come back to us and talk with us and help them to understand why we're doing what we're doing and let them, if they feel, hey, dad, this seemed really harsh. Last time you, you only did this, but this time it's like seems really, and I could have been in a moment of heated rage and I made the, the, the discipline really bad, but we should have those opportunities for appeal. That's what they do. They come back to Moses and they say, can, can we clarify a little bit? Can we maybe make some more stipulations? They say to him in verse 16, when they came near unto him, it's with the, the idea is with some respect. Verse 17, they say, but we ourselves 
will go ready armed before the children of Israel. They say, we will lead the nation, Moses, into battle. We don't want to sit on the sidelines. You're right. If we sit on the sidelines, they've helped us conquer our land. Now, you know, they've helped us raise our kids. Now I can just sit by the wayside and let somebody else do it. You know, and they sit on the side. No, they're like, we need to lead. So they say, we'll lead the nation. We are going to go ready. And the word go ready there has the idea of we're going to send our best. We're going to send our fastest troops to go into the land and to be the vanguard in front of you. We're going to lead the nation into conquest, into battle. They say we will remain in battle until everyone has received their inheritance, down in verse number 17. And when they talk about that, that is a, that is a big statement. They say we will not come back across the Jordan to the Transjordan side until everyone else, all the other tribes, are settled and have their inheritance in place. The entire conquest is done. We'll lead, and we will stay, and we will be consistent, and we will follow through. They says, we will not return. We will not even inherit the promised land, they say. Verse 19, it's, a, it's an interesting way that it's phrased there. For we will not inherit with them on the, the yonder side, the promised land side of Jordan. What they're saying is, they're saying, Moses, we'll even say, we, we know what we're getting, but if it turns out to be a lemon, we're not going to say, okay, let's go back across the Jordan to the promised land side and tell them, hey, we need our inheritance. Where's our inheritance? The way that it's written with the, an imperfect verb here means that the agreement is that it will never happen. Reuben and Gad are saying, we will stay on this side, Moses, the Transjordan side, but we will not take anything from our brethren but we will help them. We will serve with them. We will fight with them so that they can have their inheritance even before we get our complete inheritance. This was really an expression of faith. It was completely different than what they were battling with earlier. For if the Lord did not grant his people the land, what's going to happen with Reuben and Gad? They're going to constantly be fighting for the rest of their lives. That's the agreement they made. So if the Lord never lets Israel settle down in the promised land, these two tribes, these men are going to fight for the rest of their lives. They by faith understood that God said he would give them this land, that he would work, and they took him at his word to say, we're going to go. And God's going to provide this, and we know we're going to get home again. We know we're going to go back to our families and our inheritance, because God said that he would promise to give them this land, and that they would receive this inheritance. So it is an act of faith. They are walking out and saying, hey, we can follow God, and we can do this. And they follow him on a consistent basis. Now, they're beginning to work through these negotiations, and there's a compromise that's that's going to be reached here in verses 20 through 33. And there's this classic idea of, if you do this, then this will happen. So he says to them uh, in verse 20, 21, you're going to see that Moses says, if you will do this thing, if you'll go, if you'll lead, if you'll conquer, if you'll stay, if you'll do all these things, if you'll do this, and if you'll go armed before the Lord, and if you will, verse 21, go all of you armed over the Jordan, then verse 22, then after all of that, the land is subdued before the Lord, then afterwards you shall return and be guiltless before the Lord. Notice again, Moses saw that if they did not do this, that there was a guiltiness to them. The choice that they were trying to make was not a wise, and it was a sinful choice in Moses' mind. But Moses says, if you'll do this, 
If you'll fight alongside your uh, people, if you will fight alongside the congregation, if you will go and fulfill your, your commitments, he says, then you will be guiltless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. So he says that you can have that Transjordan side, but you must first fulfill your obligations. You must first fulfill the commitments that are there. And he ends up telling this to Joshua and to Eliezer. Now, why does he have to do that? Why does he have to tell Joshua and Eliezer about this agreement that Moses is making with them? Because if you remember, Moses has been told by God just a few chapters earlier, the last thing that you are going to do on this earth, Moses, is you're going to lead the people and defeat the nation of Midian. Chapter 31, what happens? Moses leads the people and they defeat Midian. Moses very clearly understands that his time is short. He is going to be dying soon and he is going to be taken to heaven. He knows that that is there, so he makes sure that the leadership, that it's passed on, that the other leaders know what has to happen and the agreement that was made so that years down the road when all this happens, Joshua's not like, wait, what do you mean you're not inheriting here? Oh, Moses told us. Moses makes sure that the leadership, the transition, that they know that. And they say, if you will not fight, this is really interesting. He says, if, if Reuben Gad, Moses looks at him and says, if you will not fight, then there's going to be consequences. Verse 30, he says, but if they will not pass over with you, telling Joshua and Eliezer, they shall have possession among you in the land of Canaan. They will not be granted this extra bonus of a possession outside in the Transjordan region. Now, what's really interesting is, how are they going to enforce that? What are they going to, I mean, you've got two and a half tribes that ends up being, because Manasseh, half the tribe of Manasseh gets wind of this toward the end of the chapter, and they're like, we want in on that too. We want to live over here. How are they going to enforce it? Are there, is there going to be a civil war that's going to break out? Is there going to be, you know, Joshua and all the army, you know, dragging the women and children by their, by their hair and the guys, you know, bringing them into the promised land and says, no, this is the inheritance? It sort of throws us like, how, how can that be enforced? But we know that they are told that they have a responsibility to enforce it. And so in order to help them understand, Moses reminds them, reminds the children of Israel, especially Gad and Reuben, he says that your agreement to this service to go to battle to work with your brothers, it is before the Lord. Look, verse 20, 21, 22, all of them talk about you will go armed before the Lord. You will go armed over the Jordan before the Lord. You're going to do this. Uh, you'll be guiltless where? Before the Lord, verse 22. And you're going to do this before Israel. So Moses highlights to them and says, hey, your decisions, your commitments here that you're making with me to serve, to fight alongside, to, to do this, you're doing this before the Lord and you're doing it before your congregation. He's looking and saying, you are making a vow, a commitment to serve, to go forward. And in order to bring true gravitas, sincerity, weight to this situation, Moses is going to lay out a statement that oftentimes has been taken out of context a little bit. Not all the time, but it has. Look, it's, a verse, it's, the, it's the verse in here that many of you know. You know a memory verse from this chapter. It's verse 23. Verse 23, Moses looks at him and says, if you don't do this, if you will not do so, behold, you've sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. So Moses 
Jesus is looking, and we, we see this verse, and, and oftentimes we use it as the, it's the big club that comes out. You know, the teen's going to go out, you know, for what the, you know, whatever you don't, whatever happens tonight, I may not know, but God knows, and he's going to get you for it. You know, he's coming after you. It's not, it's not what the, the context of what's happening here is. Sure, there are consequences to sin. Sure, God is well aware. But if I'm using that in that way, like, you know, anything bad you do tonight, God's going God's to get you with that tonight. He's going to, and then what happens if nothing happens? Then the kid starts looking and saying, wait, maybe God doesn't. Maybe my parents' God isn't really faithful to his word. There's a potential danger in using that as the big whipping stick to, to really lay it down. What is God saying here? What is, what is happening with this passage? Because of their agreement is before the Lord and before Israel, for Israel to enact verse 30 would have been difficult. Moses would not be around to know if they followed through. Moses is going to die shortly. He will not know. So who knows? How is it going to be? He reminds them, if you don't follow through on your commitments to service, if you don't go with the congregation like you have promised, you have sinned against the Lord. And because you have sinned against the Lord, the consequences of your sin are unavoidable. And there is a higher authority with the power to enforce your commitment. He looks at him and says, if you make the commitment to serve, you make the commitment to minister, you make the commitment to go to battle with the nation and you don't fulfill it, God looks at that as an affront to him. God looks at it, Moses says, and says, you're not keeping your word. You're not keeping your commitment that you have made to your congregation. You're not keeping your promises that you have made before the Lord, the commitments that you have made. And the, the Reuben and the Gadites, they interestingly come back and they invoke their testimony with the Lord. Look at verse 31, 32. They, they say, the children of Israel, or the children of Gad, the children of Reuben, answered him saying to them, as the Lord has said unto thy servants, we will pass over armed before the Lord. They look and they, they testify. They put their hand on the Bible and they say, Moses, we get it. What we're committing to is before the Lord. They recognize the seriousness of their commitments and that it is placed before the Lord. How many times have you or I made spiritual commitments to the Lord only to renege on them because we're too busy? Because I have too much stuff to do. My possessions are too great. And I don't have time because I've got to take care of all this stuff. I prioritize the world and so my priorities with God go by the wayside. Isn't that what Reuben and Gad are struggling with? All this stuff. Am I going to do this? Or am I going to follow what God has said? Am I going to follow my commitments that I have made before the Lord? When I filled out a survey to say, I will serve for my congregation. And then the time comes in a few weeks or a few months. It's summer. It's really busy. You know, I, I know I should. I've told the Lord I should get back to doing X, Y, Z. But, you know, it's getting a lot nicer out and I don't have as much time, so I'm just going to pass that off. God looks at our spiritual commitments that we make to him as serious. And they impact our congregation. They impact your family life, my family life. Your choices impact me and mine impact you. And we have to look and say, okay, this is important. What's interesting is Moses looks at them and says, you can do this. And what do they do? 
what do, what do the, the Reubenites and the Gadites do? They make some practical preparations. Verses 33 through 42. All, all in there, you're going to see all these weird names that you're like, I have no clue where they are. I really don't care. I can't even pronounce half the names of all these cities. And you're like, I, I, what's the point? What's interesting, these are all these cities that they've just conquered. And they go back through and they're going to refortify all the cities. When the people are already there, now they have all that they want. The, these two and a half tribes, because they're going to they're bring out verse 33, talks about the half tribe of Manasseh as well. Manasseh, part of the tribe, is going to get in on it. The natural tendency, is it not, when we have everything we want, or proverbially everything we want, we can tend to relax. It's nice. And I don't have to worry about those things because I get to enjoy this stuff. And we can, we can neglect our commitments. These tribes do not do that. They don't relax. There's a heart change in these individuals. They begin to make the Transjordan safe, side safe. They refortify the cities. They're going to they're gonna make sure that they're all good. They're going to even rename some of the cities. Why do they rename them? Because they don't want them named Baal, Hazaroth. They don't want their na- cities that are going to be devoted to God named after a pagan deity. There's a heart change. There's a difference. There's a new focus. There's a repentance that's occurred. So they rename the cities. They build livestock and pens. They, they make the new cities. They conquer new cities. What are they doing? They're, they're making this side safe. They're making preparations for their family, for their dependents. They're even going to, Joshua chapter 4 highlights that only one-third of the tribe, uh, one-third of the warriors went to battle, the best ones from Reuben and Gad, and Joshua was okay with that because they left two-thirds of them behind to protect the cities from anybody coming from the backside. We have the people here preparing, making active preparations. We like all these ideas of prepping, you know, prep for the end times, prep for the, you know, the zombie apocalypse, prep for the, whatever they are. Everybody's prepping for something all the time. These people are making preparations to fulfill their spiritual commitments to God. They're saying, we are going to do this, so therefore we need to get this in order. I say that I'm going to serve, well, I need to get some things maybe prepped and ready now. I say that I want to, you know, prepare to give more. Well, maybe I need to cut spending here. I need, you, we make those choices. That's what they're doing. Verses 33 to 42 is all about them prepping and making themselves ready to go into battle and to fulfill their commitment. Because it's easy to make commitments. To do the right thing after we hear a stirring challenge on obedience. Pastor tells us, we need to serve, you need to do it. And you're like, yes, that's right, I need to do it. But it's quite another thing to maintain that to keep going. And these two tribes do it all the way through. All the way through the book of Joshua, they are fighting through that command or campaign. What began as potentially a disastrous request? What started off by them looking to be selfish, self-centered, for them to do their own thing and to potentially discourage the hearts of other individuals? was turned into an ex- a glorious expansion of the Lord's promised land. It, it expanded because of the repentance of these individuals. They listened to Moses. They listened when confronted about their choices, and they changed. They adjusted. They didn't dig in and say, I'm going to do what I want to do, but they followed. You know, we, we look at natural disasters, and we all wish we could avert them. 
we could get away, but we can't. We look forward to the day when there are no more natural disasters. But what about spiritual disasters? What about the potential disasters that we face in our lives? You know, when I look at Numbers 32, Moses lays out for us the ability that spiritual disasters can be averted by the confrontation of sin that is asserted. So when someone is choosing, thinking about sin, about choices, confrontation's important. It's not something we like. It's not something we enjoy. And yet Matthew 18 tells us the responsibility that each person here has to do that, to talk with those who are hurting, that are making choices that are not wise. We have those responsibilities so that long-term disaster does not come out. We have that opportunity. I think the other thing that this passage truly teaches us is that faithfully following through on our commitments to spiritual service to the Lord and to this congregation is of utmost importance to the Lord. You look at the commitments that we make, that maybe you have made. We have to follow through on them. It's not a, it's not a physical war that we face. That's what, that's what Israel was facing. We're not, there's, there's a lot of turmoil in the Middle East right now. This passage is not telling us to take up weapons to run over and fight you know, alongside Israel and call it a spiritual warfare. We've talked about that in previous numbers series. Go back, watch those. They'll help you with holy war and, and that. This passage is, draws a wonderful parallel, though. We are in a spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, rulers, wickedness, and dark places. And we as a body of believers are called to war. Not a physical war, but a spiritual war. Oh, church, arise. Put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ our captive. We, we, we sing these things. We hear about it. We read scripture. And then we have to make a decision in our lives. Are we going to go into spiritual battle? Or are we going to live in the comfort and say, I'll let other people do it? I'll let other people share the gospel. I'll let other people teach my kids. I'll let other people serve and you pick the ministries. I'll let others do it. And I'll sit in my comfort like Reuben and Gad. Or will I look and say, wait, there are things that God calls me to, to serve this congregation and for me to serve you and to you serve one another to be part of something bigger, to be part of what God has called his church, to serve faithfully, and to then make commitments and to follow through on those commitments. Because for, not, for us not to follow through and for us not to serve God, God finds that as an affront. He finds that as a repulsive to him. And we have to look at this passage Say, wait, where am I at? How am I serving? How am I following through on my commitments that I've made to God? It's a time of reflection as we look back and we say, what are some of the things that I've told God I would do? I've made spiritual choices and I'm not living up to them. Eh, It's not a big deal. This passage tells us to God, it's a big deal. It's important for us to faithfully follow through on our commitments to God.